0: Today is the fifteenth anniversary of nine eleven. Have you found yourself reflecting upon that as you got ready for church this morning? I'm sure that you remember where you were at the morning of nine eleven. For my wife and I, we were on our honeymoon. We just celebrated our fifteenth anniversary. We were on the east coast for our honeymoon. We were in Maine. Uh, the first airport that the Terrace came through, was in Portland, Maine. So it was quite, quite a scene there uh, in Maine. Couldn't get a flight home, had to rent a car. We're lucky enough to rent a car uh, and drive home uh, across country. It's very memorable uh, for us, I'm sure for you uh, as well. One of the things that we tend to do is forget as people, don't we? Uh, God is always calling us to remember, to remember him. And I think it's important for us as a country to stop and, and remember that life changed for a lot of people on September 11th. Uh, there's a lot of people today that don't have a dad, don't have a mom, don't have a spouse, don't have a son or, or a daughter uh, that, that, that was buried. And it entered us into a new time in, in our country. Uh, there's a whole generation now in, in the United States that's been born after 9-11. All four of my kids uh, were born after 9-11. They, they don't know what life was like prior to that. You remember when you could go get on a flight? And you could just show up right before. The security was pretty minimal compared to, to what, what it is now. And it has affected the world. And it's a challenge that this generation is going to, to grow up and, and deal with. And I think what's on my heart this morning is one of remembering... And also one of thanksgiving for all that have made tremendous sacrifices since 9-11. It's it's caused our military to respond in an incredible way. And, And to this day, many have laid down their lives. And to really challenge our hearts, our country is worth investing in, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of things being said about our country, a lot of debate in our country, a lot of tension in our country. This is a wonderful country that God has blessed and for us as individuals to say, you know what? I'm thankful for my country. I want to invest in it. And as we do that, as we, we make that investment and share the love of Jesus Christ, God is going to use this. And maybe you don't appreciate our country for some reason. Um, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to, to to be overseas. Spend some time overseas, and I think you'll come back and you'll be really thankful for what the Lord has provided here. I mean, this is something special that's worth uh, investing in and in, worth investing in for, for future generations. So as we prepare for the word, I also want to just pray for our country and, and have a moment of, of remembering as we're on the 15th anniversary of 9-11. So let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the United States. We're thankful to be citizens in, in this country. We understand that you have blessed our country. From the very beginning, your hand was was upon it. And we reflect this morning upon 9-11, and God, we, we ask, uh, Lord, for those that lost loved ones through those terrorist attacks, that you would comfort their hearts this morning. That you would bring healing and comfort, that you'd bring good out of the tragedy and out of the ashes. And Lord, would you stir our hearts to be thankful and to also invest, to really look at how you would use us in, in this season. We thank you for our military and how they serve and serve currently, make a lot of sacrifices. We thank you for those that have laid down their lives for for our freedom. We thank you that you have all of these things in your hands, even though we don't understand fully what you're doing. This morning, as we open up your word, we pray you'd speak to us, that we would have a greater understanding of you, Jesus. We pray for the ladies at the women's retreat, that you would bless them and refresh them. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me to Mark chapter two, Mark chapter two this morning. We know what it's like to be attracted to something and also to be repelled by something, to be repulsed by by something. This morning, we are attracted to the Denver Broncos. What a win Thursday night. What a great game. And we're repelled by the New England Patriots. (laughs) What a great way to start a message right there. We're going to look at two groups of people, one that's attracted to Jesus Christ. As we read through Mark chapter 2, you're going to find individuals and groups that are attracted to Christ to seek him, to follow him. But we're also going to look at another group that's repelled by Jesus, that's repulsed by Jesus. What we find in the life of Christ is you're never neutral with Christ. We think we can be neutral with Christ. Like, I'm just all right with Jesus, and Jesus calls us to a place of either following him, being attracted to him, or being repelled by him. So the question for us is what group am I in? Am I in the group that's attracted to Christ, or am I in the group that's being repelled by Christ? Verse 1 And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. He had gone, he'd left from Capernaum to go to the neighboring cities in the Galilee region to preach, to minister. After some days, after a season, he now returns to Capernaum, to a house. Most likely coming back to Peter's house. We saw that in chapter 1, that he visited Peter's house in Capernaum. Word gets out that Jesus is in the house. Don't you like that? Wouldn't it be wonderful if Christ was welcomed into our homes and that was the testimony in our neighborhood, hey, we know that family struggles, that we know they're not perfect, but we know that there's something different. Jesus is in their house. Jesus is in their apartment. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony of Rocky Mountain Calvary? Not our church building. The church isn't the building, but us as people, That they go, man, they're not perfect. They have their own struggles. Sometimes they annoy me, but I know this, That Jesus is in the house, that Jesus is the one that they worship, that Jesus is the one that they follow. So, word gets out. Verse 2 immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. The draw for Jesus to come to him, the synagogue, he taught with authority, he cast out the demon, healed many sick. As soon as they hear that Christ is back, you've got this huge crowd gathered at the home once again to where there's no room in the house. They're gathering outside of the door. In verse 3, then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. So the masses are being attracted to Jesus, but now specifically, four guys have this idea. We're going to grab our paralyzed friend, we're going to bring him to Christ. We know that Christ has done miracles. We know he's healed people. He has the ability to be able to do this. So come on, let's go. We don't know how this paralyzed man felt about it, but it wasn't his idea. It's very clearly the idea of his four friends. What a wonderful, powerful, beautiful picture of friendship. To be able to say, I am going to bring someone that I love, someone that I care about, To Jesus. I'm going to make the sacrifice to get them there. So you can picture them carrying their friend They come to the house in verse 4 And when they could not come near him because of the crowd they uncovered the roof where he was So when they had broken through they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying This is determination How easy would it have been to get to the home There's no way to get inside of the house. Nobody's going to let you through. This would have been the opportunity to say, well, it didn't work out today. Let's come back another day. We'll have to find another opportunity to bring our friend to Jesus. Was it one of the friends that looks up at the roof and says, I think we can get him up on the roof. And I'm willing to rip the roof off and drop our friend right at the feet of Jesus, while he's teaching. Was there some type of discussion? You're crazy. We can't rip the roof off. Finally, there's an agreement. Let's do it. Let's go for it. The roofs were flat, used much like our decks, to enjoy the cool of the evening. They get up there and they begin to tear the roof off. Listening, I think Jesus is teaching right about here. Let's drop him right in front of of Christ. We bring this to our own lives to bring people that we love to Jesus. How do we do that? How do we do that today to bring someone to Christ? We know that Christ is here spiritually, but not physically. We can't see him. So what are some ways that we could bring a friend to Christ, specifically someone that we know, we go, man, you're paralyzed. Not necessarily in the physical sense, But they're stuck in life. They're broken. They're going through a hard time. They don't know Christ. They're not walking with Christ. They do know the Lord, but they're struggling. I think the first way is through prayer. The best way is through prayer. To really lift them up to the Lord in prayer. Not get discouraged by obstacles. Church, sometimes we've got to rip the roof off. Sometimes there's got to be some determination to say, I'm not going to give up. I'm not giving up on this person. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to continue to lift them up to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes I tend to think that prayer is the last resort. After I've done everything else, tried everything else, said everything else, well, I guess there's nothing left to do but pray. Prayer is not the last resort. It's our first option that is the most powerful. We want to see someone reached by Christ, we need to pray for them. I feel that my life is a testimony to answered prayer. For whatever reason, growing up in a Christian home and in the church, I had a really hard heart towards the Lord. Talk about someone who is repelled by Christ, that was me. I didn't want anything to do with the Lord. Would wake up on a morning like this where it's the beginning of football season. And I would have done everything possible to stay home from church and watch football. Remember getting a thermometer and trying to put it by the light bulb to get it nice and hot? "Oh, I got a fever. I can't go to church this morning. Didn't work. <laughs> My parents were faithful to pray for me. Lift me up to the Lord. My mom is very committed to fasting and praying. That's mom's secret weapon, I got to tell you, you know? And in the midst of my hard heart, God eventually won out and showed me that he loved me when I didn't want to have anything to do with him. There's been times as an adult where it's been a difficult season, and I know friends are praying for me, and I feel refreshed. I feel touched by the love of God. God's, God's answering those prayers. Don't give up. Keep praying. Rip the roof off in prayer. Secondary to praying, I think it's then important to share. To share who Jesus is, what Jesus has done in your life, and what he desires to do in their life. By sharing, we're bringing Jesus before that person. We're saying, This is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus has has done for you, giving them an opportunity to respond to Christ. Another thing to understand in verse four before we go to verse five is be careful when you do welcome Jesus into your house. Because you might lose your roof. Jesus is more cared about people than he is is the roof. I wonder if this is Peter's house, if he's going, What in the world's going on here? It's a stinking stampede. Everybody's pressing into my house and crammed onto my street, and now some joker's ripping the roof off and this paralyzed guy's coming down. I think it was exciting when Jesus taught, don't you? When he taught in Capernaum, casts out a demon-possessed guy. Now here comes this paralyzed guy through the roof while he's preaching. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Whose faith did Jesus respond to? Their faith. He responded to the faith of the four men. So not only were these men physically doing this, but they did it through a heart of faith. They believed that Jesus desire to do a work in this man's life. God responds to faith. Sometimes it's the faith of the individual. Sometimes it's the faith of others who believe that God has a desire to do a work in their lives. What Jesus says to this man is, son, your sins are forgiven you. Put yourself in the shoes of the four friends. What would your response be? Well, that's great that he's forgiven, but he really needs to walk It's pretty clear we went through all this effort that that he would walk. This is not what they would expect Jesus to do for this man. But this is the man's greatest need to have his sins forgiven. Something that only Jesus can provide to lift off that weight, that guilt, that remorse of sin. This impacts his eternity. He's right with God. He's being granted eternal life. If he's physically healed, but not forgiven of his sins, he's not in a very good place. He doesn't have eternal life. He still has the weight of his sins. God gives to him the greatest thing possible, the greatest gift. And that's true in our lives as well. A lot of times we want to experience God doing a miracle in our life, something supernatural in the physical that we can see. Maybe it's a physical healing, God, here I have something wrong with my body. I want you to, to heal me. Maybe you go, well, that's too grand. I just want God to heal my car. You know, my car has been paralyzed and I laid hands on, on the engine this morning asking that God would just do a work, right? So I don't have to t- take it to, to the mechanic. But, you know, you, you've heard over and over, man, I, my faith would be stronger. I would know that God is real if he did something miraculous that I could see in the physical world. But if you know Christ as your Savior and you're in Christ, you've experienced the greatest miracle. And that's the miracle of salvation. That's the miracle that your sins are forgiven. That's something that the Old Testament believers longed for. To have their sins completely cleansed. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Your sins have been forgiven. Now we see this group that is repelled by Christ. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. The teachers, the scribes, those that were in charge of copying over the scripture with such meticulous detail, they're starting to reason inside of themselves. Why does this man speak blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. It's very strategic. I'm gonna forgive this man of his sins, to make the declaration that I'm God. They do have the right understanding, the scribes, only God can forgive sins. They get what Jesus is saying, that he's declaring himself as God, and it makes them mad. They're grumbling, complaining, getting angry inside of their hearts. And isn't that true today with people that are repelled by Jesus? Maybe you're repelled by Jesus. And it comes down to this. You don't agree that he's God. You love his miracles, you appreciate his teaching, you can accept his existence, but when it comes to the fact that Jesus is God, you're like, I I don't think so. I'm repelled by that, and that was true for this group as well. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? They're not saying anything. Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he begins to confront the motivation of their heart. There's an aspect to hanging out with Jesus that's extremely frightening, and that's because he knows everything that we think and everything that we feel. What if this morning, if our thoughts right now were revealed? What if you knew I was what I was actually thinking, even though I'm the one speaking? What if I knew right now, and everybody else in the room knew exactly what you're thinking? We would run out to the parking lot as fast as possible, wouldn't we? It's humbling. Christ knows, knows our thoughts. And Jesus now speaks and challenges what they're thinking. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Which one do you think is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven because it's in the invisible. It's in the internal. God knows, you know, but how do you prove that? But if you say, arise, take up your bed and walk, there is a physical ramification of that. If that's true, then the person is going to be healed. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the Paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house so that you know that I'm the son of man and I have the power of God to forgive sins. That, that I am God and I am able to forgive sins. We're introduced to this phrase, son of man. Son speaks of the fact that Jesus is the son of God. He's deity. Man speaks of his humanity, the mystery of the incarnation, all God And all man there was a purpose behind this miracle For god's glory to be able to be declared The man is healed He rises up And takes his bed Why did jesus tell him to take his bed? Possibly as a reminder here. He was carried on this cot On this stretcher And now he's able to pack it up and take it home himself The way he goes home is very different than the way that he came to this place. Immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Nobody was going to let this guy in, but everybody's parting to let this guy out. He's just received the forgiveness of his sins and the ability to be able to, to walk. The people's minds are blown away by Christ. Then he went out again by the sea, and all of the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Jesus is taking advantage of every opportunity to share. The people came to the house. He preaches the word. Goes out by the sea. People are gathered there. He shares the word again. As he passed by, verse 14, let's pause there for a moment, underline it, meditate upon it. Jesus is going to call Levi unto himself. And it happens as Jesus is passing by, as he's doing life. As he's going from teaching now to the next thing, it's transition. It's driving home. It's walking in the neighborhood. It's picking up the groceries. He sees something in Levi, notices that the father's doing a work in him and says, follow me. Being used by the Lord... Having our lives supernaturally pour out the love of God many times comes in being willing to follow God's leading as we pass by, as we go from one thing to the next. Paul said, be ready in season and out of season. Sometimes you know you're going to have the opportunity to share God's word. You prepare, you're in season. But a lot of times you have no notice. You could never plan that, that coworker is at a breaking point and begins to open up their heart to you on that particular day. You couldn't plan to get that phone call. You couldn't plan for God to lead you in that way as you're in, in the grocery store. A lot of times, I go through life with my head down trying to get all my work done. Are you like that? There, man, there's so much to do in a given day. Whether it's stuff at home to keep the home going, Get my list going. Got to, got to get those things done. Here at the church to get my work done. Accomplish those emails. Get to those appointments. A lot of my work life revolves around my phone. I'd be lost without my iPhone. Tells me when my appointments are, where I need to go. Begins to send those alerts at, at six in the morning. But I've got to remember the iPhone doesn't control my life. Just go ahead and say that. My phone does not control my life, you know? What if God wants me to slow down and not get the things done that I want to get done today and be open to a really cool thing that he's going to be able to do? This is a different way of living. This is looking for the opportunity in the moment. Looking into someone's eye and sensing that the Holy Spirit's doing a work and asking them how they're doing. God puts a friend on your heart. And you send him a text, hey, you doing all right, man? God laid you on my heart. As Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. Levi is a Hebrew name. Yet, he's a tax collector for the Roman government. He's an Israelite, of the Roman government. He's a traitor. How much do you like tax collectors? Do you like tax collectors? How much more so someone who's doing it for the Roman government? The Romans had come in and taken occupation of Israel. Also, we know historically that tax collectors were thieves. If you owed $500 in tax, they might Charge you $700 in tax. Give $500 to the Romans and keep $200 for for yourself. And Jesus looks into Levi's eyes, who's also known as Matthew, and he says, you, follow me right where you're at. He is in the midst of sinning. He's in the middle of stealing from people. God says, right now, I want you to come and follow me. Isn't this so simple? but also so profound, right, right where you are, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your sin, I, I'm calling you, and Matthew, I want you to follow me. I want you to go where I go. I want you to be with me. I want you to follow my example. Allow me to take authority in your life. Levi, also known as Matthew, becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, walks with Christ, eventually writes the gospel of Matthew. This is not where we would go to find our disciples. This is not where we would go to find the future leaders of the church, those that would take on the leadership from Jesus Christ. But it's exactly where Christ is calling. Maybe this morning you look at your life and you go, man, it's filled with struggle. It's filled with sin. You're right in the midst of sexual sin. It's, it's a part of your life. It's a part of your, your, what you're doing. It's a part of your constitution, if you would. Maybe your life is spinning out of control with drugs and, and alcohol. Maybe you feel like you're pretty squeaky clean on the outside, but inside you know the depravity of your own heart. Guess what? Jesus is calling you. He's saying right now, would you follow me? Would you allow me to take authority in your life and change and transform your life? Church, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. For us as believers, for us that have committed to Christ, this is what Jesus declares to us every day when we wake up. Eric, will you follow me? Will you allow me to have authority in your life? Will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? Would you be with me? Would you do what I do? Allow me to have that authority in your life. We never grow past this point. This is always what Jesus is bringing us back to. But yet, it seems like in our culture, it's easy for us to miss this. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I trust Jesus for salvation. I'm going to heaven, but I haven't really decided to follow him. Maybe it's never been presented to you in this way where Jesus is calling you to follow him. He's calling you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to know him, to know his word to be willing to walk in obedience. Notice where Jesus calls Levi. He doesn't go to his house, knock on his door at 10 o'clock at night and says, hey, Levi, I want you to follow me. Let's keep this on the down low. It's just between you and me. He goes to the public place where Levi's known to be a tax collector, calls him publicly and says, right now, let's do this. And Levi responds, and he gets up, and he follows Christ. Amazing. In verse 15, Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Awesome. Go back to Levi's house for a meal. Guess who's there? A bunch of tax collectors. Those turkeys hung out together. Probably didn't have a lot of friends outside of this particular group. And sinners. Jesus goes and he has a meal with them. He loves them, spends time with them. Was their friend. The gospels tell us Jesus was the friend of sinners. Aren't you so thankful for that? Aren't you so thankful that Jesus pursued us in our sinful state when our life was a mess, when we didn't want anything to do with the Lord? What if Jesus would have said, "Hey, why don't you get your act together and then I'll hang out with you? Why don't you go ahead and clean yourself up and then then I'll have a meal with you?" He comes right to where these guys are. The disciples come as well. At this point now, there's many disciples. In the end of verse 15, it tells us, "And they followed him." There were other tax collectors, other sinners, that saw what God was doing in Levi's life, and they say, "I want that too." I want to follow Jesus as well. As believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, in following his life and in example, we need to have a good balance in our lives where we have believers in our lives to fellowship with and to be encouraged. But we also need to be the friend of sinners. We need to be with people that don't know Christ as their Savior because that's who Jesus died for. If someone's life is messed up and they use foul language... And they make poor choices. As a believer, we don't go, well, you know what? I'm never hanging out with you. Once you stop cussing, we can hang out together. You know why they're cussing? They don't know Christ. That's just the beginning of it. You know what I'm saying? What was your life like before you knew Jesus? Did you have a believer in your life that prayed for you, that spent time with you? That was willing to minister to you right where you're at? And before long, the longer that we walk with Christ, we get into a Christian bubble, don't we? And We look around and we go, I really don't have a friend that's not a believer. I'm not really spending time with with, with any, any sinners. That's something to pray about. That's something that I'm challenged with. We go on in verse 16 back to this group that is repelled by Christ. We see those that are attracted to Christ in verse 15. And now those who are repelled in verse 16 And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? These guys repeatedly missed the point. They should have been excited that the paralyzed man's sins were forgiven. They should have been excited to see what God was doing in the life of tax collectors and sinners. But instead, they go, Jesus is guilty by his association. What in the world is he doing with those guys? You have to understand to share a meal in this culture was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of oneness. It was very personal. Dipping into the same dish. Oftentimes leaning up on one another. Not sitting down at a table and chair with silverware that we're so used to. If Christ walked the earth today, we would probably be offended by who he hung out with. Where he spends time. And we go in verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When do you go see the physician? When do you go see the doctor? When you're sick. Sometimes you don't even go when you're sick, because it costs too much, right? Jesus is saying, I'm the great physician. This is who I came for. They know they're sick. They know the depravity of their own hearts and their own minds. I didn't come for the righteous. Who's he speaking to? The scribes and the Pharisees. They thought they were righteous because of their works. They didn't think they needed anybody to die for their sins. They had it all together. Jesus is like, okay. I didn't come for you. Good luck. Do it on your own. He came for those... There were sinners to call them to repentance. To say, look, you know that you're a sinner. You know that your life is messed up. Now turn away from your sin, believe, and be saved. And aren't you so glad that Jesus came for sinners? Because that's us. He came for us. And that was that moment of awakening, that moment of receiving Christ as our Savior. Oh, I'm a sinner. I'm aware of my sin. And Jesus came for me. If you haven't received Christ as your Savior this morning, He came for you. Are you aware of your sin? Did you come this morning and go, I don't even know if I can come to church? I don't have my act together. Absolutely. None of us do. We come depending upon Christ, and He wants to save you, He wants to give you forgiveness. As we reach out to people, we need to be reaching out to those that realize they're sinners. If you're talking with someone, and they're all good, like, I I got this. I'm trusting in my own works. Hey, Lord bless you, man. When you get to a point of brokenness, call me. You want to be reaching out to those that they go, man, I know my life is a mess. I've destroyed my family. I'm destroying myself. I'm a sinner. Could anybody love me? Could anybody save me? He didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinners to call them to repentance. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. They came and said to him, Why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Apparently it was the season of fasting. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees, they all fast, but Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. The issue is not fasting. God calls us to fast and pray. The issue is timing. This is a time of celebration. I'm here. The bridegroom's here. So these guys are rejoicing. But I will go and that will be the time of fasting. Do you guys fast at weddings? Imagine that. You go to this time of celebration and you're like, you know, I'm so happy for you but I'm fasting. You're going to need the prayer. (laughs) You're going to need all the help you can get, right? They look at you and go, why don't you leave? What's wrong with you? Can't you be happy for us? Can't you celebrate and enjoy this time together? Jesus now speaks to the scribes and Pharisees, and I think there's a lot for us to learn. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Jesus was doing a new work, but the scribes and Pharisees couldn't accept it because it didn't fit into their religious tradition. So he's, I'm looking for new wineskins that are flexible to receive the work of the Spirit. Could it be that we could fall into the same mistakes of the scribes and Pharisees? God's always on the move. He's always working. He's never going to depart from His Word. So someone that says, well, you know, I want you to be a new wineskin, and we're going to go ahead and reject the teaching of Scripture. No, that's not it at all. The message never changes, but the method does. So God's word never changes. We always stay committed to to God's word. But God at times will want to move in different ways. Electric guitars and drums were not always played in church. And there was a group in the 60s that said, you know what, why can't we play drums and electric guitars in church? And there were some pastors that said, I don't see why not. It's biblical. Make a joyful noise. God's created all these instruments now let's use it for his glory. Do you know what the common thing in churches throughout America is now today? To play drums and electric guitars. There's nothing edgy about it. You know, 95% of the churches this morning are going to have drums and electric guitars. It's what we've, we've, we've become used to. But at the time, that was very, very risky to do. Well, only Satan plays the drums. Right? Right? <laughs> But you know, we probably would have a hard time if there was some young people that said, hey, we, we want to just play some techno here. We want the bass where you can feel it. And you'd be going out the door, right? She's so like, the Spirit of God is not in this. There's no way the Spirit of God can be in this. But what if they love the Lord? What if they were... Worshiping God, sharing sharing the message of God. What we see from church history is there's a, a group of people, usually a small number, that's open to the Word of God and the move of the Spirit. They're committed to the Word of God, and they're open to what the Spirit wants to do. God begins to move in a powerful way. Eventually, a movement is birthed. Over time, that same group of people gets caught in their traditions the way they always do it, stays committed to the word, but stops following the leading of the Holy Spirit. The church starts to regress, to spiritually die. They move to a place of non-relevance where they're no longer being used by God to impact people. God then begins to raise up a new group of a small amount of individuals that don't have resources, that don't have experience, that don't have traditions, that are willing to be committed to God's word and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't want that to happen to RMC. I don't want us to grow out of the place where God is moving in our church. That as church leadership and individuals, we say, you know, I'm not going to hold on to our traditions. We'll never depart from the message of God's word, but we're open to what God would want to do what if I came to you this morning, I said, you know what, we're no longer having Sunday morning at nine o'clock. We're not compromising the message, but we really feel like God wants us to start a service at four in the afternoon. Oh man, that doesn't work very good for my schedule. And who goes to the church at four in the afternoon? Now we're not doing that. We feel like the Lord is in this service, so take a deep breath. What if we felt like God didn't want us to have a harvest gathering. What? We have harvest gathering every year. Four or five thousand people show up from our community. We, we have to do, do harvest gathering. What are the dentists going to do if our kids don't get all that candy? Right. It's effective outreach. We've done it forever. Now we believe that God's still in our harvest gathering, but we want to pray about it every year. We want to say, God, we've done this for a lot of years. But is it your will for us to do it this year? We don't want to go, well, it's retreat season, so we're having a retreat. This is when we always do women's retreat, so let's do women's retreat. It's a season for fasting. It's a season for women's retreat. God, what do you want to do right now? And in the same way in our lives, maybe you've read through the Bible every year for many years. Have you ever thought and considered as you head into January, God, what would you have for this year? And maybe he says, I just want you to focus on the Gospels. Just read the book of Romans for the whole year and meditate upon it. Proverbs is for you this year. Read it over and over again. God, that's not what I do. I read through the Bible every year. I'm not a good Christian if I don't read through the Bible every year. You get the idea. We want to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. In verse 23, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of the grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, Why do they do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? The issue wasn't taking the grain, plucking the heads of grain. The law allowed that. The issue is the scribes and the Pharisees thought they were breaking the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar the priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest's and also gave some to those who were with him. David's fleeing Saul for his life, goes to Abathar the priest. The priest gives the showbread because he understood the heart of the law. The heart of the law is love and human need. So Jesus uses that as an example. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says, guys, you got this all mixed up through your traditions and all of your rules. God gave a day of rest for man. The purpose was to bless man with rest. They'd put so many layers of rules on it. It would be tons of work. I'm trying to figure out if I broke the Sabbath or not. How far can I walk? Can I pick up this piece of wood to start a fire? He says, no, the Sabbath was, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he declares the Son of Man, that title again, is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That day of rest points us to the rest that we find in Jesus Christ and his finished work. So here's the question this morning as we close. Am I attracted to Christ? Or am I repelled by Christ? No neutral position with the Lord. And if you're attracted to Christ, follow him. Follow him. That's what he's calling us to And if you've drifted from Christ, if you're repelled by Christ, I'd ask you to reconsider your position. And as we close in worship, just like Jesus called Matthew, Jesus is calling you to repent of your sins, to believe the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose again and follow Jesus. And come right down here in the front, there's gonna be a ministry team and let them know I'm ready to receive Christ as my savior. He's just as much... Present and willing to forgive your sins as he was for the paralyzed man and also for Levi. Maybe you've stopped following the Lord. You know that you're the child of God. But you would say, honestly, in my heart and my mind, I am following myself. I'm following the world system. Would you come back to the Lord this morning? You respond as well. And recommit to follow Jesus. Jesus Christ. Maybe you have a physical need in your life, just like this paralyzed man. Let's come and pray together. Let's come and bring that before the Lord together. So let's stand, let's pray, and respond as the Lord is putting upon your heart. Jesus, you're awesome. We stand in awe of you this morning. You know our hearts, you know our thoughts, but yet you love us, and you died for us while we were yet sinners, and you call us unto yourself. As we worship and as we we sing, may you be magnified, may you be glorified, and may we respond as you're leading each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.